think it was a couple of months in, we had about 10,000 followers, which at the time was huge for us. And um, we posted too many naughty photos, <laughs> too many nipples, too much um, body. And Instagram deleted our account. Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert. The overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Mava. Now get comfy, fellow lady brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Let's be frank. If you haven't lathered yourself in some frank body or seen babes all over the internet posing in their bathroom covered in coffee scrub, then you need to go take a peek. With just a pocket full of cash, some ground coffee, and a killer brand, our next guest, Bree Johnson, along with her business partners, Jess, Alex, and Steve, have managed to build a thriving multi-million dollar beauty biz off the back of just one scrub. How? Well, a playful product range paired with cheeky tone of voice and the ability to truly leverage user-generated content plus so much more. And not only that, the ladies behind Frank also run creative agency Willow and Blake, which they started at just 22. Talk about serial entrepreneurs. We sat down with Bree and learnt that Frank was almost called Piccolo and got the inside scoop on how the team were able to generate an almost 100,000 person waiting list for their long-awaited shimmer scrub. What were you kind of like as a child? Have you always been a little bit entrepreneurial or? Uh, Yeah, it's an interesting question. I know I don't think I've always been entrepreneurial. I've always been creative. I think as a child, my parents were really great in that they always encouraged me to write and to paint and express myself creatively as much as I could. Mm -hmm. But entrepreneurial, no. No. I just fell into it. No lemonade stands. No. And I'm real. There's this girl in my street. I've got this house on Brighton Street. And there's this little girl who lives across the road from me. And she's this absolute girl boss. She's had a lemonade stand. She's literally oh. sold me lemons. She sells me raffle tickets. Mm. And she always comes to me, to my house, because oh she knows God. that I'm going to buy 10 of whatever she's got. She's a door knocker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but she had this lemonade stand the other week and I bought one. It was a dollar and I gave her $2 and I was like, I'll keep the change. You know, that's oh, a tip. Nice. And then we went back to my house and then 10 minutes later she knocks on the door and she's like, my mom says I have to give back the dollar. <laughs> Oh, so ethical. I know. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I'm teaching you the wrong thing. Or... <laughs> I was like, oh, no, tell your mum it's a tip. And she's like, no, I have to give it back. <laughs> it's for tax. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, but I really like her. She really um, gives me faith in the next generation. Mm. Mm. But that wasn't your vibe when you were young. No, that wasn't. I was more just in my own world, painting, writing. Mm. Not really thinking about business. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating as well, the fact that you've always kind of known that you wanted to write Mm. and you've always loved that and you're still doing that now. Mm. So what was your kind of early career like as a writer? So I studied journalism at Monash and I thought I wanted to go into working in the glossy publications, you know, Clio or Cosmo, and that's where I did all my internships. Mm. But I quickly realised that that wasn't quite the place for me. Mm. Um, I Also, I was really attached to staying in Melbourne. I love the culture here. I love the people here. My family's here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was lucky enough to start interning at Broadsheet. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I got quite nostalgic because I saw their latest print publication the other day and I saw the little ad for the interns and I remember applying for that. And I was very lucky because I was, you know, pretty fresh out of uni and Nick and Cece, they really took a chance on me um, and I interned there for about 
three months before I plucked up the courage to ask for a full-time job. Mm. Um, and at that stage, I'm pretty sure I was the third or the second full-time employee. Oh, wow. Mm. So it was so great because I got to work so closely with Nick and Cece and they really took me under their wing and mentored me and taught me so much and so many of the skills that I use today, everything from people management to editing to writing to how to create good content. And then when um, Renz came on board, I learned about advertising and the business side of that. Yeah, I'd be forever grateful for them for really taking that chance when I had no idea what I was doing. And mm. that's where I, I guess I got really nurtured in that mm. regard. What kind of made you want to start your own agency? Did you go straight from that into co-founding yeah, Willow so, and Blake? Yeah, so we'd started Willow and Blake at about the same time. Um, by that stage, Ari, Jess and myself, we were all working in full-time jobs. So Ari was in set and Jess was in music at uh, 360 and I was at Broadsheet. And we all loved our jobs and I obviously loved working at Broadsheet and I learned so much there. But we quickly realised that we didn't really want to work for our bosses. We wanted to be them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something that was really special about all of us. We had young entrepreneurial bosses and Mm. they gave us that freedom to, I guess, take ownership over our roles and make them what we wanted them to be. And we saw an opportunity. We were doing a lot of copywriting and a lot of writing in all of our roles. And there was no agency that was really focusing on the written word. So at the time, there was a lot of creative agencies, there were a lot of design agencies, but there wasn't a lot of copywriting agencies or people focusing on tone of voice. And words have always been what I've been passionate about and writing stories and telling people stories. And I remember when I worked in journalism, I always thought that copywriting was, I guess, like the evil side of writing, like the commercial Mm -hmm. side. But I quickly realised that copywriting is just as creative Mm -hmm. and even more Mm -hmm. creative than journalism sometimes. Um, And while I love broadsheet, there's only so many times you can write about eggs and breakfast. (laughs) 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 You know, you want to start going a little bit deeper. You can eat it endlessly. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So we saw an opportunity to create an agency that was really focused on words um, and telling a brand story. Mm. And it was about the same time that social media was just starting to become popular. So we got in, you know, at the right time. Mm. And we started, you know, with that one small client, which is Jellybean Shoes. And we created their whole tone of voice, built their brand and really marketed it through social media. And then from there, we grew. It was a lot of hustle and a lot of, lot of hard work, but mm. really rewarding. So how did you find or how did you build your client base? Was it all through your own networks? Like how did you hustle in the early days? It's pretty old school. We've created a folio and we sent that out to a lot of different agencies, a lot of different businesses. I remember the subject line was coffee writing. What's that? Um, and we just wanted to take people out for a coffee. We said, we'll take you out for coffee. We'll tell you about what we do. We'll show you our work. And we, years later, still got emails with that old folio and like replying to that same subject <laughs> oh, <really>? line. Yeah. <laughs> wow. like we built up a pretty epic list. And, um, <laughs> but it's amazing how many people were willing to take the time to just mm. have that conversation with us and by talking to people and, I guess, selling ourselves how much work we were able to generate. Mm. And then from there it was a lot of word of mouth. You know, we did gorilla things. We got all mm. these stickers printed and we stuck them all around Cremorne, mm. outside um, different businesses and different agencies that we wanted to work with. So we were like, oh, you know, that clothing brand is in there. We'll stick our stickers all around the area so they oh, must cool. see it when we're walking past. Um, I've never heard that before. Yeah, just little things yeah. um, that I think help. 
Uh, we threw a couple of parties as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's always a good way to generate Always a good way. <laughs> get people drunk. <laughs> get them drunk. Get drunk. And spend money. Ask them for their money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was, yeah, it was mainly just hustling and hard work and persistence. Just mm. constantly, if anyone was starting a business, we would be there. We did a lot of work for free in the mm-hmm. early days or at very reduced rates, which was good for us to hone our skills and also to build up that portfolio and show what we could do and then once we'd proven our proof of concept and proven what we were worth we were able to put up our prices or when people mm. came back to us they'd pay a little bit more mm. from will on blake after that you started frank mm. and i think from what i've heard and what i've read part of the reason you wanted to do that was because you had some limitations with clients not Mm. wanting to be very adventurous or, you know, a little bit risque with their copy Mm. and you wanted to have a go at doing something that was fully yours where you could do whatever you wanted and you didn't need approval. Is that kind of the way it came about? Yeah. It's like an experiment almost. Yeah, definitely. So for us, we started Frank as a bit of a case study um, for Willow to show what we could do for our clients it was also quite serendipitous. So there was five co-founders in Frank and Ari, Jess and myself had Willem and Blake, which was the creative agency specializing in building brands. And then Steve, my husband, my now husband, mm-hmm. his background was in coffee. Um, so he had these two ladies come into his cafe and ask the old coffee grinds. They told him they were using it as a body exfoliator. At the time, we were looking for a product that we could market predominantly through social media to that millennial customer. Mm-hmm. Our other co-founder, Alex, was really interested in e-commerce specifically Shopify, um, and we knew the natural skincare market was going to take off. We could see that people were already caring about what they were eating. It made sense they'd start to think about what they were putting in their body. Mm. So when we started, Frank, we had a few simple missions. We wanted to make natural skincare fun and bring that energy and that sexiness that colour cosmetics have and apply that to natural skincare, which traditionally was a little bit more flowery and a little bit softer. We wanted Mm. to bring that bold kind of edginess to it. And then secondly, we wanted to reduce a lot of the hyperbole and the exaggeration that was in the skincare market. There was a lot of fluff, a lot of jargon. And as consumers, we were sick of exaggerated claims. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the whole brand name stems from, this concept of let's be frank, let's just be honest, let's be upfront about what the product is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a few different reasons how we got to be frank. A, it's an awesome brand that we're really passionate about. And B, it's a great product. Mm. And how did you come up with the name? I mean, it makes so much sense um was it a really hard process was it something that just came naturally like yeah how did you get there well it it was originally going to be called piccolo which is a a little coffee yeah 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 so our very first we have these old scrub packets the little brown ones and they have piccolo written on them like permanent (laughs) marker Um, and you know that name definitely could have worked um i think sometimes people get really fixated on the name Mm, and they go around and around in circles Mm. and at the end of the day it's really more about the brand that you build around it. That's it. It's obviously important to have a great name. Frank came about through me, Ari, and Jess. Uh, we actually wanted to give it to another client originally. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, but then they didn't want it and it wow. obviously worked for this. So I think it was in the back of our brain. Right. Um, and it obviously fit the whole concept of being honest and being transparent. Yep. It started, actually, that's how it started. It started as a value. Frank was one of our mm. values. And then we turned it into the name and the overarching concept. And it worked for a number of different reasons. It's also a little bit different mm. coming from a male perspective. Um, and we decided to personify the brand and personify the product so we could speak to people on a one on one basis. Mm. So in those early days, when Frank's 
starting to take off, Mm. but you also have Willow and Blake. How did you split your time between the two and, you know, work out what are my priorities? Yeah, I guess that's an ongoing issue. (laughs) Still haven't quite worked that one out. Um, In the early days, it's really supply and demand. So whatever the business needs Mm. the most attention, it gets the most attention. Um, We were still working pretty much full-time on Willow and Blake and Steve and Alex were both working full-time in their jobs. So a lot of what we did... For Frank happened after hours. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd finish work and then we'd go back to our apartment, which was above one of Steve's cafes, and we'd make the scrub, pack the scrub, and send the scrub. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mary Jess and myself obviously focused on the marketing, mm-hmm. so a lot of that had to happen during the day. And this was five years ago when there was no scheduling for social media, so we were mm-hmm. posting throughout the day. We didn't sleep a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no. No, but it, we were so happy and we were so excited yeah. because it was working. We weren't that tired. Because you could see the results. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I think when it's the first few months, yeah, you're just on that high where you're like, it's all happening. Mm. Um, And I I think if we didn't work that hard, it wouldn't have ever gotten Mm. to where it is now. Yeah. So what was that like in the first sort of week or month of launching Frank? Like what Mm. kind of strategy was behind it? It was obviously a very big social push. Mm -hmm. But behind the scenes, what was going on? Like how many influencers did you reach out to? Like what was that process actually like? So when we launched, we it was more of a side project. We didn't know how big this brand or this product was going to get. Well, we had an idea, obviously, and we had a strategy behind how we'd launch. Yeah, getting people to talk about it was the main thing. And to do that, we had a few different methods. Obviously, social media was where our consumers were playing, so that's where we focused our attention. And education was a huge priority for us. So a lot of our customers, well, Coffee Scrub then, was a relatively new product. There was no one else doing it in the market. Uh, and so we had to show people what the product would look like. And the way to show people what the product is, is to put it on people's bodies. So we started with our own bodies, mm-hmm. taking selfies <laughs> and taking photos of our mm-hmm. legs so people could see the consistency of the product because it, it's a beautiful texture um, and it's quite visual, which is important for how, our success. We put them on social media and then obviously we started seeding with influential people. So models, makeup artists, people in the natural wellness space, people with large Instagram followings. And this was completely different back in the day. So we built up a list of hundreds of people uh, and sent the product out. Again, very simple notes, just if you like it, we'd love you to share it with your friends and give us your feedback. And from there, we really grew. But the main driver behind the brand was the user-generated content. And once people started to replicate that uh, and post under the hashtag, hashtag the Frank effect, <laughs> that's when we really started to see that momentum mm. and the brand really grow really quickly um, when we started getting the organic content coming through from all of the people who were buying it. Mm. And how do you maintain that momentum? As you said, social is very different back in mm. the day. Things are very different now, but you're still growing, you're still doing mm. really well. And a lot of the brands that kind of launched on social kind of die mm. after a few years because the landscape changes and you're obviously constantly evolving. So how do you maintain that momentum now and keep people talking about the brand? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's something that we talk about a lot and how we remain relevant and how we continue to understand our customer and learning who our consumer is and how they're evolving. Over the years, it's obviously we've grown up and the brand has grown up with us and we've changed slightly. But um, just always looking at diversifying, keeping ahead of the trends. We've changed our sales channels. So we were predominantly .com for the first two and a half years and then we moved into retail. Mm-hmm. So we went to Mecca Maxima here in Australia, Ulta in the US, Sephora in the EU, mm-hmm. about 10 bajillion brands in the UK, mm-hmm. Liberty, Selfridges, um, Space and K, Urban Outfitters. Oh, yeah. 
the hut group, skinny dip, a whole lot. (laughs) So diversifying the channels was really important Mm. to us. Um, We knew that dot-com was always going to be our primary driver Mm -hmm. and where we wanted to focus our attention, but we didn't want to be reliant just on our dot-com customers. So having retailers, it's almost like a form of advertising for us as well. It helps to legitimise the brand, uh, to create credibility and also to reach new customers. And what were some of the things that you found really challenging kind of diversifying into retail because it's a completely different space to online? Like how did you come up the learning curve really quickly? Timelines. Timelines, <laughs> timelines are the hardest, I guess the biggest challenge we've had. Being direct-to-consumer and a startup, we're used to working to our own timelines mm. um, and then when you start working with these retailers, you realise how much time it takes to actually get a product onto a shelf. Mm. Um, There's a lot more that goes into it. Um, And that's something that we've been constantly learning over the last five years is the more time you can give yourself, the more planning you can do, the better prepared you'll be. I remember when we got our first order for Sephora, we realised that we weren't going to be able to make it in time. Um, So we had to hand pack all of the product. (laughs) So we had the whole team pretty much doing shifts for quite a few days obviously we got air taskers in to help us as well but because oh. we, all the boxes had to be um had to have a translation slip put in them which has all the right. like it's like 20 different european languages oh. and so you have to get the box get the little slip fold it all up and it was a challenge but it was a real testament to the team of mm-hmm. how when you when you work together and when you're really excited for something you can make mountains move yeah <laughs> did you have to get retail experts in to help you with that process that is a great question. We did. Yes, we mm. did. Uh, originally, we tried to do it ourselves. And then one of the most important key hires that we made was our global sales manager, who's actually just moved on, which is really oh, sad, okay. but exciting because mm. he's off to a really wonderful new challenge. Mm. But he was incredible. And he really, really helped us grow the brand and taught us so much about retail. Um, and obviously, now our new retail team is growing very quickly as that becomes more and more important to the business Mm -hmm. and we are looking to bring in people who are experts in their field so one of the key learnings is that as a founder you can't do everything and Mm -hmm. there are lots of people out there who have specialized knowledge and rather than trying to do things you're going to save yourself a lot of time and a lot of money if you seek them out and you bring them in-house to help you Believe it or not, Frank's journey hasn't always been smooth sailing. And like any new business, they've experienced some challenges along the way. We continued our chat by asking Bree about some of her setbacks in the early days. We had a few really key learning lessons very early on in the business. Um, The first one was once we'd launched, my sister is an IP lawyer and she asked me for something a coffee one day and she's like, so do you have the trademarks ordered for Frank? I was like, No. No, no, we don't. We're only a small business. It's fine. I don't think we really need that. I think once we get a bit bigger, then we'll look at doing, you know, all that kind of nitty-gritty stuff, getting our shareholders' agreements sorted and getting our trademarks sorted. And she's like, okay, I'll just run a quick search for you and just check. Hmm. So a couple of days later, she sends me an email. like, so someone else already owns the trademark for Frank in your category and this is something you can't ignore. <laughs> but luckily, because she was my sister, she got onto it for us and we managed to negotiate with the owner of the brand and that's why we're now Frank Body instead of just Frank. Originally, oh, right. originally we were Frank. So, yeah, the important key learning early on was that you should make sure. Check your trademarks. Your trademark <laughs> is available and yeah. secure it early on. 
So you were able to negotiate with the trademark owner because there's like a, a loophole where if they agree to allow it to happen, so yeah. you were able to do that. Oh, that's good. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So he'd had it for a few years, but he hadn't actually launched his brand. Right. Um, and so we were lucky in mm. that um, we managed to negotiate um, and we became Frank Body. Um, and then he could obviously go on and create his brand and just be Frank. Um, yep. And then we would go from there. Um, the second key learning was our social media account. So I think it was a couple of months in, we had about 10,000 followers, which at the time was huge for us. Mm. And um, we posted too many naughty photos, <laughs> too many nipples, too much um, body. And Instagram deleted our account. Oh. Mm. There's nothing you can do about that, right? No. Like you just have to take it. No. On the tune. Yeah. Far at, out. at the time, it was devastating. Yeah. Um, looking yeah. back, it was a good key learning. I think otherwise we could have got to 100,000 followers and done the same thing, and then yeah, yeah. and then yeah. learnt. Um, Blessing yeah. in disguise. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Is it, is it a risk? I mean, you obviously focused on Instagram quite a bit mm. and and social media. Is it a risk having such a refined strategy? Would you recommend that or would you say to someone, you know what, just be in case Instagram closes mm. down your account or a platform doesn't yeah. exist next year, consider your marketing strategy and, and spread it out? What would you advise to people starting up now? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to make sure you capture your followers or your consumers' details and in a way that you can own them. So emails mm. is really the strategy that we focused on, so getting people to sign up to our database because then we have their contact details and we can communicate with them one-on-one rather than something like Instagram or Facebook where the mm. algorithm can change or, yeah, your account can get shut down. It is it is still quite risky. And is it true that last year you launched um, a new product? I think it was the Shimmer Scrub. Mm. And you had 90,000 people on the wait list? Yeah. Yep. So that was a, a big driver and a big part of that strategy was building that list. And we did never expect the wait list to get to be that big. How did you do that? Yeah, what did you do? So we did a referral program. It was quite a simple competition. You referred friends. The more friends you referred, the higher the prize pool got. So the first one was a sticker. The second one was slightly better stickers. And the third prize was to get the shimmer scrub, which no one else had. And this was Mm. the first opportunity to get your hands on it. When we created this product, again, we hadn't an idea that it would be really popular, but we didn't realize just how popular the shimmer scrub would become kind of went a little bit hate this word viral (laughs) um but it made sense we really tapped into that glowing holographic unicorn phase Mm, that that has just been blowing up for the last two Mm. years we keep thinking it's going to stop and then it it doesn't Mm. and our consumers they love that you know they what they love about frank is that it gives you that instant gratification you use the scrub and your skin immediately feels soft and smooth use the shimmer scrub it feels soft and smooth and you have that beautiful iridescent glow. Mm. So when we launched the referral program, uh, yeah, people obviously wanted to get to the product. They, we thought they might just be happy referring a few friends and getting the free sticker, but they all really wanted to get, I think it was had to refer 10 friends or maybe 20 friends, I can't remember exactly, to get to uh, the Shimmer Scrub and that's what everyone was doing and, and that's how it, it grew so quickly um, because then from there we used that list to create more hype. Um, mm. around the product and we knew that we already had so many people who wanted it so that it, we, and we only had a limited amount and so we created I guess this need or this want and desire and I want to use the word fear. But, I was going to um, say FOMO. Yeah, yeah. FOMO. Totally, yeah. FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> that it was going to sell out and you wouldn't get your hands on it. Yeah. 
So when it did sell out, we kept the waiting list going. Mm. Um, and what was good, well, not good, good and bad, was that it sold out, but there was still all this hype going. Totally. So yeah. all these influencers still posting about it, all this media was still talking about it. And we originally weren't going to bring it back. It was limited edition. Mm. But we just were like, oh, we'll keep the wait list up and we'll see yeah. how we go. And then by the time we managed to make more product, it had grown. Yeah, nearly 100,000. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. And really playful too, which I think mm. is a beautiful reflection of the brand and the yeah. business. You know, you had that wanting to get to the next level, mm. the stickers and the sharing and, yeah, the, yeah. and the product. Yeah. You know, it's all really beautifully playful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. um, that was one of our whole missions was to make natural skincare fun. Mm. Mm. And so, like, being the most fun you have in the bathroom is, I guess, that overarching idea of the brand that resonates throughout all things that we do. We want mm. when people play with our products, when they go to our website, when they go to our social pages. We want them to smile. We want them to have fun. You know, we make skincare. We're not – it's not a serious brand. Mm. We make seriously good skincare. Mm. But we don't take ourselves too seriously. We like mm. to have fun. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about the marketing and the things mm. that people can see and the Instagram strategy yep. and tone of voice, which are all kind of really important mm. to the overall effect of the brand. I want to talk about the product development side mm. of things a bit. Yeah. What's that process like? How do you go about that? And how has it changed from mm. the start to where you are now? Yeah, of course. So we have um, quite a straightforward product development or product philosophy. All our products are natural and naturally derived. They all have coffee in them and they all tested on babes, not bunnies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so everything we do, it has to be really fun, as I said before, but it also has to be really effective. Um, and we reverse engineer a lot of our products. So we talk to our customers, we do a lot of surveys, we talk to them on social media. Our customer experience team um, are really pivotal in helping us correlate all that information and work out exactly what our customers want. Obviously, we also look at the trends and what's happening in fashion and on Instagram and in magazines and what people are really resi- what they're looking for. Jess and myself and the boys, Steve and Alex, are all really involved in product development, and then we work really closely with our manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So we put together the brief for what we want, and then they come back to us with prototypes, and we utilise the whole office uh, to do our product testing, which mm-hmm. is always quite... <laughs> hilarious mm-hmm. <laughs> coming back with all of the different selfies um, we had one product which was an early iteration of the anti-drama mask which just launched a few weeks ago uh, and it was a pink mask and we had this obsession with making the mask really really pink mm. and so we did all these things like we use pink clay we use Australian clay mm-hmm. we ended up putting beetroot extract mm-hmm. into the mask and um, we are putting it on and I'm like I go quite red when I use a clay mask because my skin is really sensitive <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I, it just wasn't going down. It's just oh, no. staying oh, red. No. Oh, no. I'm like, why? What is wrong? Like I've had an allergic reaction. But no, yeah, we'd actually, I'd actually Beetroot. stained my Your skin. Face. Oh, no. <laughs> the Beetroot. Approved. Yeah. <laughs> Straight to the shelf. Exactly. So when we say tested on babes, we, we mean ourselves. Yep. Um, and the process, it can take, you know, the, um, our anti-makeup cleansing oil took over two years to make. Yeah. Um, because making a natural product act in the way that a synthetic product does is, is really challenging. We can't just put a surfactant in there or a peg. We have to find a natural alternative that's as effective and that can take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also really lucky in our team, 25 
diverse people downstairs and so they all have different opinions mm. um, and that's always awesome because it means we have a lot of debate and, and we we won't uh, sacrifice our quality yeah. um, we won't sacrifice in our ingredient philosophy um, but ultimately we end up with a really great product mm. and what do you think has been the biggest challenge for you with product development there's always challenges I think <laughs> <laughs> it's always time um, yeah. it's mm. it's wanting things Coming up, we'll get, coming up with an idea, and I guess well, one of the challenges we have is that because we don't come from a, a beauty background, we come from a creative background. So mm. we come up with these ideas, like, I want a face mask that does this. Mm. But actually making that happen is a whole other challenge. Mm. Um, and so as creative as you can be with the limitations of being natural, of being made here in Australia, we can't do everything that we want to do. Mm. Um, and so we have to find that balance between the fun creative side of us and the actual practical making a product that does what it says it's going to do side so like for example we'd never like when we want to make a pink mask we're like there's no point in making a mask that looks really pretty that doesn't do what it's supposed to sure yeah it has to be efficacy first before the fun creative branding Mm -hmm. side um and then yeah timelines so as i said Mm. everything takes longer than you think it's going to take from packaging to product to shipping it all our products are made in Australia and and now we have the challenge of shipping them all overseas so getting however many units of stock from here to Sephora to Ulta and we have an amazing amazing team who do all our demand planning and our forecasting Mm. Um, and that's been a huge challenge for the business is learning how to forecast Mm -hmm. and think ahead so that we don't have to air freight um, because that just ruins our gross margins yeah Look, they're all pretty like common challenges, I yeah, guess, across definitely. beauty brands, whether 100%. you're a few years old or you're a hundred years old. Mm. Like <laughs> a lot of the challenges mm. we had at L'Oreal as well was this same sort of thing, like, you know, air freights and you'd have to mm. get it signed off and it was like you'd have to go to the really big boss to get it signed <laughs> off. And it was not not fun. No. <laughs> I know. It's always yeah. especially yeah, especially with retailers, especially with marketing. And it's like constant mm. battle you're like mm. oh but for long lead media i need to send them products yeah you know six months three months mm-hmm. ahead of time like i don't have any product to send you yeah sorry yeah. you can have this tester <laughs> yeah <laughs> this sample <laughs> this sample that i've used <laughs> and at what point did you go out and seek manufacturing partnerships and like stop making the product yourself at what point in the business journey did that happen and was that hard like how did you go about that yeah that was really early on so Mm. we made the product by hand for the first god too too long (laughs) (laughs) over the first six months but I remember we're coming up to Christmas Mm. and as you guys would know in in the beauty world Christmas and holidays is huge Mm. and we actually won't we won't make it we physically can't Mm. manufacture enough product to meet the holiday demand it took us a long time to find the right manufacturer we looked overseas we went to china we got samples back and the quality just mm. wasn't there so we were really lucky we found a local manufacturer who's worked with us for the last five years and grown with us and yeah wow. been a really pivotal part of the business mm. and have you lent on their expertise quite heavily throughout the product development process yeah we have it's always been a collaborative process yeah. um we are control freaks, <laughs> to put it subtly. <laughs> um, but definitely, yeah, they've worked with us really closely on coming up with what products we should make and how they should function and, yeah, helping us get to where we are now. Mm. Yeah, I find that interesting, the whole onshore, offshore. Like mm. we've spoken to a few people that have looked all around the world yeah. for a manufacturer but have come back to Australia because mm. they know the quality. You know, obviously you can 
yeah. speak to them real time, yeah. you know, your time. Yeah, it's interesting. It is. And I think Australian beauty is really having a moment mm. at the moment and is just going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Uh, we're seeing it all over the world. People are really respecting Australian ingredients, mm. respecting Australian made. It does. It's that sign of mm. quality. And we're pretty lucky that we have really high standards when it comes mm. to how we make our products and what ingredients we use. Mm. And particularly with natural skincare, I think we're quite progressed in that regard. Yeah. Um, we have a better understanding of it and something that Australians really value. Yeah, definitely. I heard on a random podcast a while ago that apparently Australia has the most patents for natural beauty formulas. I mean, that yeah. doesn't surprise me. Mm. Yeah, I, that would make sense. Yeah. Thanks, Statman. That's great. <laughs> Just mm. so you know. <laughs> I love it. I um, love it. That's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what has kind of been your biggest pinch me moment on this journey? Seeing Frank on the windows at Mecca was a huge moment for us. That's always been a brand and a retailer that we've loved and gone and shopped at and mm. really respected. And Joe and Marita are both incredible, incredible women who really inspire all of us, but particularly me and Jess. Mm. Um, and seeing you know, this little brand that we built all over the windows, we have a whole gondola that was the first time we'd seen Frank, I guess, in real life yeah. mm-hmm. and been able to see customers actually interacting with the brand. And even when I go in today and I still see people buying it off the shelves, I'm still like, oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> is someone buying the product? <laughs> and that's something you don't get through .com. You, know, you yeah. don't get, ever get to see them. You just see them click check out. And yeah. like, oh, okay. mm. But actually being able to see them in a shop, pick up the product, read the packaging, smell it, touch it, feel it, that's so rewarding. Mm. Likewise, uh, we went to Paris earlier this year. I went to the Champs de Lisay and saw our brand there in Sephora, which is one of the Crazy. busiest Crazy. beauty retailers, mm. the best beauty retailers in, in mm. the world, and that was a huge pinch me moment. I think it was three and a half years ago we went on director's retreat in Paris and we went and visited that store and that was always one of our bucket list like what if and and now that's happened which is huge for us and crazy likewise seeing our pop-up shop earlier this year was wonderful I think I just love connecting with our consumers Mm -hmm. and getting that chance to really talk to them one-on-one spending so much time on the internet and being such a digitally focused brand it's so Mm -hmm. rewarding for me to actually see people interact with the product and talk to them and understand who they are but yeah, as well, the biggest pinch me moments that are sometimes just in the office when I walk in and there's a whole team having a brainstorm. I'm like, oh my God, and they're getting so proud to see the team growing mm. and interacting. Opening our New York office, that was mm. huge. Very exciting. Well. So Got an incredible team of five women over there who are mm. kicking some serious goals. Just being able to say our New York office. <laughs> <laughs> By New York office, I mean a little tiny we work. <laughs> Still. Still, still counts. counts. Still counts. Still counts. <laughs> still counts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's lots of pinch me moments. Yeah. But they're the most rewarding. I yeah. Think. Yeah, obviously, and there's also the awards. Jess and myself have been lucky enough mm. to win. They're also pretty cool. Who inspires you? Lots of people. I guess I'm lucky enough to be inspired by the people I work with every day. So my co-founders, Steve and Alex and Jess, they're all so, so different, um, but so incredible in so many different ways. And we all think very differently um, and we've gone through some real lows together but also some massive highs and they're what kind of keep me going and what inspire me on a day-to-day basis. I'm really lucky. We have a young team. They're super energetic and their brains are so creative um, and coming to work every day is 
obviously sometimes stressful, but when we're working together as a team, that that's what really inspires me and mm-hmm. gets me going. What makes you happy? Morning walks with my Douglas. He's a little border terrier. Cute. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you've got a dog. She better mention the dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cups of tea that my husband makes me. Long lunches with my girlfriends, talking about things that really matter and having proper conversations mm. in real life. Mm. A good book, sunshine, plants that aren't dying. <laughs> Very specific. I have to go water my plants. Don't come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and pan fried pork dumplings. Ooh. Yum. Delish. <laughs> Um, and lastly, what is next for you? Ooh, it's a great question. Um, there's still a lot more to come at Frank and at Willow and Blake. Uh, this is still just the beginning of this brand. A lot more products, a lot more retail, a lot more team members, and potentially maybe our own shop one day I think would be Ooh. fun. For Willow, we've recently become a full-service agency, so now we do everything from naming to design to branding to social media, um, and there's a lot more growing for that business to do and potentially more overseas offices. Cool. It's very exciting. exciting. Can't wait to watch. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, And head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.